just felt like you know he didn't he had no he didn't have a hundred percent proof and he knew that if he fired those missiles whatever happened would be the end of the world probably so it was like i'm not doing it welcome to spice up your life today's episode is going to be a little bit different i'm going to try to versatile the podcast our guest today is a world famous film director but not only because of his engagement and interest in in making movies about uh, true events but also the way he does research he's met world leaders and essential people from the political arena the real people who's actually there who he then uses uh, and learns from to to um, make his movies so uh, let's call him up and see what he's what he's doing me yep here but no see you i'm here in los angeles you're there in sweden where are you stockholm yeah stockholm what bird is that is that in my place yeah or is it my place <laughs> yeah it could be mine <laughs> hello and uh, welcome everyone to uh, spion podden and also the english version called spice up your life spice up your life um, I hope uh, the English is getting better from my side, from my part, but um, I don't know, we'll see. Today I have a very, very special guest to me because it's actually, he's made one of the most of my favorite uh, spy movies called uh, No Way Out with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. And he's also made another film regarding uh, quite a lot about surveillance and it's 13 days. So... Um, I'm very proud to pre- present to you the director of both these films, Roger Donaldson. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, we met a few years ago. Um, I was doing a, a documentary film called Diamond Dogs. Uh, I love that film. <laughs> Thank you. Well, listen, uh, I was um, I was thinking um, I, was, I was thinking we could start to talk about. Um, Actually, it's up to you, but but either No Way Out or, or 13 Days, because they're both... Uh, I think the most interesting thing about 13 Days is that it's actually based on true facts. So maybe we should start with 13 Days, if you don't mind. Okay, far away. Yep, great. So um, tell me, what what is 13 Days about? Well, 13 Days is about the Cuban Missile Crisis that happened uh, back in the uh, 1960s, uh, when Kennedy was the uh, president of the U.S., um, the Russians had put missiles into uh, Cuba as a result of, I think, probably what the U.S. was doing on the borders with Russia. And uh, Khrushchev wanted to pressure the U.S. to maybe rethink what they were doing. Um, anyway, they uh, they shipped missiles down to Cuba, and uh, there was a showdown in the uh, near Cuba when the Americans said either you know, pull out or we were going to go to war. And... Um, it was a, you know, I remember at the time as a young teenager, I wrote a diary, you know, not really being aware, not really being sure that the next day there'd even be a world to wake up to. Um, there, there were dramatic times. So, um, for those of you who don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, or don't know, or, or a lot of you weren't even born, I'm going to try to tell you very briefly what happened and uh, give you some of the main characters. So the, it, it occurred in October 1962, and, and it's probably the closest uh, 
we ever came into having a nuclear war on Earth. The Soviets had placed missiles on Cuba and the Americans found out thanks to airplanes taking surveillance photos of, of the island and on those photos they saw these huge uh, missiles, the Soviet missiles. There were two sides. You had, let's say, two sides of the Berlin Wall. You had Nikita Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, a very charismatic and uh, strong figure, I would say. I clearly remember when watching some footage of Khrushchev holding a speech in the UN, when he gets so upset that he actually takes off his own shoe and starts beating it on, on the podium where he is uh, holding the speech. It's quite funny. And on the other side you have uh, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, often referred to as JFK or Jack. He was unfortunately shot and killed in Dallas November 22nd, 1963. You have these two sides and in the middle you have Fidel Castro, the, the revolutionary and col also colorful leader of uh, Cuba. Uh, a man who I always saw with a big cigar in his mouth and always with a beret and military clothes. The whole world was actually holding its breath. It, it was extremely scary time. It was all over the news and everyone was preparing themselves to die or, or th that the earth was going to be in a nuclear war. On uh, the American side you had uh, Robert McNamara, who was the United States Secretary of Defense. Uh, I know him mostly because he played a major role in escalating the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. But you also have Robert Kennedy, who was JFK's or John F. Kennedy's younger brother, uh, who was the United States Attorney General. And he was essential in, in the talks and the negotiations with the Soviet Union. Uh, he was unfortunately also shot and killed the year after his brother. But there's another little character here who's called Georgi Bolshakov, who was a Soviet GRU officer and probably a, a legal spy. But he played a major role for the Soviet Union during his years in the US, and not to say the least in the meetings with Robert Kennedy. Bolshakov had, had straight access to Nikita Khrushchev. He's a very interesting character. He wasn't a politician or anything. He was, he was a journalist. He was officially a journalist, but behind the, behind the scenes he was probably a lot more than that for the Soviet Union. But anyway, after several days of negotiations and while the whole world was holding its breath, an agreement was reached between Nikita Khrushchev and John F. Kennedy and the whole world uh, sighed of relief. The threat of a nuclear war was over. When, when I saw the movie again quite recently, I, I was um, quite taken about the, the surveillance and, and the, the airplanes in the beginning of the, of the film and how they found out. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, the, the missiles were discovered with the U-2 flyover. Um, I think, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, the uh, Cubans had actually shot down a U-2 that was flying over the, over the, over the country and uh, they managed to get another U-2 over and they uh, took these big rolls of film that were, you know, like maybe half a metre wide. The, the film was so large. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, they took photographs of what they thought were these missile bases in Cuba. And sure enough, when they looked at the pictures, there were the um, proof that the missiles were in fact in Cuba. Yeah. But how, how important uh, do you think surveillance is when you look at, even though you, I mean, even, even when you make movies, but but also in in real life, uh, how do you how important? Well, you is know, that? Surveillance, of course, is you know the very heart and soul of you know trying to keep track of what you're either your enemies are doing or your fellow citizens or whatever. And of course, um, in this day and age, where you know you can be tracked by cell phones and cameras, and you know it's becoming a very important. Uh, topic of discussion, just what's you know appropriate, especially in this time of the COVID virus spread. You know where people want to know who they've been in contact with, uh, with as a means of tracking if there are if people are infected and who they're passing it on to. But at the same time, you know people don't necessarily want to know what the information to become public. And uh, so you know the, these are very. Um, I mean, I think surveillance has always been a very controversial subject, and right now even more so. Yeah. But you worked with with Kevin Costner twice, at, at least what I know of, uh, or maybe a few more times. But how come you you work together so much? I guess we got on well doing No Way Out, and uh, Kevin was actually you know the one that got me on to doing Thirteen Days. So it was thanks to Kevin that I did the movie. Okay, but you did a lot of uh, research, and also you went to Cuba. Can you tell me a little about about that? Uh, you know, part of my pleasure of making a film, especially about real events, is to try and understand as much as I can just what really happened. And the research I did, it started off with Kevin um, O'Donnell, the son of uh, Kenny O'Donnell, who's a character in the film. Yeah. Uh, Kevin was sort of, you know, my conduit into the whole project. Um, his father was, you know, right-hand man of the Kennedys. Um, so, I, you know, he, he had passed on, but his son, Kevin, introduced me to a number of people and so I got to talk to people like uh, Ted Sorensen who was Kennedy's speechwriter. Um, I got to meet Khrushchev's son who was then working at the Boston University in uh, political science. Uh-huh. I got to, um, the uh, I tracked down the the uh, CIA photo interpreter who had found the missiles on the U-2 photographs. I met the pilot of uh, one of the planes that had overflown Cuba and taken the surveillance pictures. Um, I met uh, the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Um, and then after I'd made the film, um, uh, Khrushchev, not Khrushchev, K- uh, Castro had heard about the film and, and invited uh, the filmmakers to come to Cuba and show him the film. Oh. I was unfortunately going to New Zealand for my to be with my family, so I didn't go. But anyway, as a result of that uh, screening of the film for Castro, He liked the film and thought it was sort of a fair representation of the American point of view on the subject. He decided he would have an anniversary of the, the 40th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, invite all the Russians and all of the Americans who were still alive to come to Havana for a weekend <laughs> and talk about what had happened and why it had happened and try and make, you know, as a conflict resolution um, discussion. So I went with there. I went there with my daughter, one of my daughters, and we went there with. Um, This group of two plane loads of Americans, and uh, we spent a weekend in Havana, with uh, hanging out with all of the people who had been on the Russian side and the Cuban side and the American side. It was it was quite enlightening because you realise that hearing everybody's stories, how much closer disaster had really been than everybody thought at the time. There were things that really did happen that it was a miracle that they didn't finish up in warfare. 
Yeah, uh, especially when they were actually firing on the on the surveillance, uh, the, 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 the small planes that went in to do the extra surveillance photos. But there were ones, there were situations like the Americans had a Russian submarine sort of boxed in and were dropping depth charges on it. And the Russians, captain of the submarine was at this there and said that the Russian, his orders were that if anything like that happened, he was to fire missiles at America, assuming that a war had started. And he was like, just because they're dropping depth charges on me doesn't mean a war really has started. And so he defied his uh, instructions, really, his orders, and didn't fire these missiles at America, which would have started a war. And he was there telling his story from uh, the, you know, the uh, the uh, submarine commander was there at this conference, as well as the captain of the destroyer that was dropping the depth charges. And there were these two guys face to face telling their sides of what happened. It was extraordinary stuff. So the Russian submarine captain was there telling his story, why he didn't push the button or whatever you call it. Yeah. Well, what did he say? Well, he just felt like, you know, he didn't, he, had no, he didn't have 100% proof and he knew that if he fired those missiles, whatever happened would be the end of the world, probably. Hmm. So it was like, I'm not doing it. And, and how did the American reply? Well, everybody was sort of suited, but, you know, you realize, uh, you know, 40 years after a conflict, everybody's best friends all of a sudden, like, you know, these people, you know, we're still, we're, we're now friends with the Germans and the Vietnamese and the Cubans and, you know, things get forgotten as time passes. I'm reading from Wikipedia. Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, Vice Admiral, was a Soviet Navy officer credited with preventing a Soviet nuclear strike and presumably all-out nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Such an attack likely would have caused a major global thermonuclear response. As flotilla commander and second-in-command of the diesel-powered submarine B-59, Arkipo refused to authorize the captain's use of nuclear torpedoes against the United States Navy a decision requiring agreement of all three senior officers aboard. In 2002, Thomas Blanton, who was then director of the U.S. National Security Archive, said that Commander Arkhipov saved the world. It's funny when you see the film, it, it the, the the movie you you made it. You, it sort of feels that the Americans seem a little bit more trigger happy than than the Russians, or is that just an illusion or impression that I have? Well, I think um, you know, I think everybody was trying to put their best cards on the table. <clears throat> you know, the I mean, I only really got to know the Americans point of view when the film was the American point of view, it wasn't the Cubans point of view, or the Russians yeah. point of view. But I think this conference proved to be conclusively that everybody had a legitimate point of view. And when you're on one side, you don't swap to the other side, you see it from your own through your lens and your glasses. And that's the point of view that you think is legitimate. Well, I think it, it, it's it's an extremely interesting thing about one when you watch the movie, uh, you you wonder what could have happened if it was another president or another vice president. Well, I think I, in retrospect, I think all three leaders sort of deserve credit because I think they all modified their position, gave peace a chance, as it were. They didn't really want to be the one that started a war. No. 
they wanted the other side to back down and everybody realized that you know if all three could back down then they could disengage and things would resolve peacefully which is what happened really and when you say three you mean khrushchev kennedy and uh, castro when you made this film it's it's based on 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 true fact how close to reality are you do you remember you know my intention was to be listen it's a dramatization of it and it's, you know but i think the it fitted the known facts it had access to a lot of people who were really in the know like you know when ted sorensen saw the film he knew exactly what happened he was like this is not exactly as it happened but it sure feels like as it happened to me at the time so he recognized that you know we had taken artistic license with how we told the story yeah. but he said This is what it was like to have been part of that experience. This film is very accurate in its representation of sort of the suspense, the fear, the what, how was it going to resolve itself? The back door meetings, back room meetings. This is what it was like to be there. Yeah. Ted Sorensen was an American lawyer, writer, and presidential advisor. He was President John F. Kennedy's speechwriter, but also one of JFK's closest friends. President Kennedy once called him his intellectual blood bank. We've seen quite a few documentaries about about the events, and and it seemed like you did you did use a few real or let's say authentic um, pieces of, of film as well. Yes. And what what was that? The- Some of the real film that I used, there were demonstrations outside the White House that was originally filmed in black and white, and I uh, managed to uh, have get access to that film. Um, in fact, it was a deal that we did with the National Archives where we digitized the Zabruder film, you know, the assassination of Kennedy. Mm-hmm. We were able to use the footage um, that we used in the film, and some of it was outside the White House, and we had stabilized and we colorized it, so you know, you really can't tell. Which is what stuff that we shot or stuff that we created. Ah, okay. But tell me a, a, a bit about Castro. I'm quite quite interested. In, how how was he? Well, listen, I met him very briefly, and you know, I didn't really get to you know, I mean, I uh, wouldn't want to get on his wrong side. <laughs> he was very charming. He was very you know, um, one of the one of the more memorable moments of this conference was Robert McNamara, who was the U.S. Secretary of Defense wanted to leave sort of a little bit before everybody else was leaving because he had to be somewhere and he said to castro you know well you know i guess we won't be around for the 50th anniversary and he says maybe i'll meet you in heaven and castro said no 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 no. we won't meet in heaven we'll meet in hell <laughs> so he had you know had a self-deprecating sense of humor but he also you know loved to talk and it was hard for anybody else to get a word in edgeways he would talk and talk and talk I've seen the documentary that Oliver Stone made of uh, Fidel Castro, and I can I also got the sense and feeling that he likes to talk. Yeah. Listen, um, when you do these uh, these these when you do these huge budgets and huge movies, uh, how do you get how do you get permission to go on on real hangar ships? Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff in 13 days that you would assume that we had permission to do. You know access to bases and things we most of it we we recreated ourselves oh, okay uh, like there's a piece out on the uh, jf kennedy i think it's a destroyer it was actually a museum ship that hadn't moved for 20 years 
and uh, we towed it out into the ocean and digitally removed the big tow rope that was, you know, from the tugs that were pulling it. And But we went out into the ocean and really shot it with, you know, fired off its guns and all that. We, with these museum staff members who, but the boat didn't have any ballast in it, so and it felt literally felt like in the sea, it felt like it was going to tip over because it was sitting so high and it was like, oh, it was like, oh. It's very scary for a while. Yeah, I can imagine. But 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 the 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 plane the airplane um, sh- shots. I mean, some some of them are, are real, aren't they? We uh, we built uh, we built the missile base that was supposedly in Cuba. We built it in the Philippines. Okay. And, uh, we took a, a Learjet camera ship. There's a, a a company here that had this Learjet decked out, for, fitted out for filming, high speed filming. So we we did all of the aerial shots from this Learjet. And then we created, a, you know, we got a real uh, cockpit and we green screened the visuals into the cockpit pictures. And it looked incredibly convincing. And um, it was pretty scary shooting this stuff flying below tree level at 300 miles an hour in this jet to get the pictures. There was one point I, I was in the, you know, making sure that we got the shots I wanted to and I was in the plane. And there was one tape we went over this 50 millimeter gun firing at us and of course it was firing blanks. You hear boom, 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 boom on, the, on the bottom of the plane. And I go, I thought we'd hit the tops of the trees. The guy goes, no, 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 that's just the percussion from the guns. That's how low we're flying. Oh. Just the air coming out of the barrel of the gun was so close to, I mean, we were probably only 20 feet above the gun at 300 miles an hour. So I was very, I was, I was pleased when we finished shooting that because it did feel differently pretty crazy. But how, how does it feel to, to make a movie with one of the most important events uh, in in modern history? I've always been fascinated by, you know, international politics and uh, Americana, I guess. And this nothing is more sort of been, you know, important in the history of recent USA than, you know, what happened in the 60s. And this is part of the 60s. And, you know, it was when I first came to America. And so, you know, I enjoyed just getting to meet many of the players that had been part of the story and uh, and then just to recreate this bit of history was you know probably one of the more satisfying movies I've ever made why do you think it's important to make uh, movies about true events even though it might not tell a good a, a good version a good side of, of another of a country I you know uh, for me you know making films about true stories is I like total fiction and I like true stories. You know, I made a film called The Bank Job, which was about a bank robbery in London that was based on a true story. Um, I did uh, The Bounty, which was based upon, you know, the the uh, true story of, you know, the mutiny on the bounty. Yeah, with Mel Gibson, right? Mel Gibson, Tony Hopkins. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis, Liam Neeson. Wow. Two great actors. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, then I've made and I've made uh, World's Fastest Indian that was based upon a documentary mm-hmm. that I made. But then I've done completely fictitious stories, you know, like No Way Out, Cocktail, you know, Species. They don't have to be their true stories. They're just looking for a good story, good something that can you know I can dig my teeth into and enjoy making and hopefully make a great movie out of. Yeah, you made some fantastic movies, but I told myself that I'm not going to turn this into a movie. <laughs> episode. I'm going to stick with 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 the surveillance and intelligence um, uh, subject. So so, but let's go to to um, 
No Way Out with Kevin Costner, which is one of my absolute favorite movies in, in the sentence of spy or spying or, or, or surveillance. Right, far away. So you just said that it's, it was completely fictitious. Um, so tell me, is it? Yeah, as far as I know. I mean, it was based upon a book that I uh, called The Big Clock, which was set in a newspaper office originally. Um, and in fact, I didn't even know that it was a had been another movie. When I did the movie, I in fact I ran into Mel Gibson, who you know, I'd done the bounty with at a at a party, and Mel says, "I oh, hear you doing that, uh, the Big Clock." And I go, "No, no, no, it's a movie called No End." He says, "Yeah, yeah, no, it's based upon this book, The Big Clock." I go, "No, no, no, it's an original screenplay." He goes, "Trust me, it's a, there's a book called The Big Clock," and he was right. But I didn't know until I was putting the credits on the film. And they gave me the credits to put on the film. I was like, fuck, nobody told me this. It is based upon a book. Well, it gives, uh, it gives you quite a, um, you know, it could, it could be true. Well, I mean, that's what a good film does. You know, where you go like, oh, my God, is this a true story or not? Because, you know, all the things that happen in there really do happen. You know, people get surveilled. People have relationships. People get killed, murdered come to sticky ends, people, you know, have homosexual relationships. I mean, all of the things that are in this film are a part of real life. So it's not like you're inventing melodrama for the sake of melodrama. These are stories that you sort of, when you get involved in them, you go like, wow, is, uh, did this really happen? And I think that's sort of, when you ask us if it really happened, that to me is a compliment to the film. Yeah, t- totally. I, I, I just want the audience to know that we're going to ruin the, the ending for you. So well, here you do. <laughs> or maybe we don't have to ruin the ending. But I don't do that because when the film came out, people would not talk about how the film ended. No. So don't spoil it. No, let's not spoil it. But it, it's, it's an amazing ending. And I remember the first time I saw it, I just kind of freaked out. Good. Yeah. Gene Hackman is a fantastic actor. Sean Young, what a star and a talent she is and was at the time. Um, you know, he had a great cast. John yeah. Alcott is the last film he ever shot, who uh, did a lot of uh, Kubrick's movies. Yeah, the cinematographer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, I've, you know, there were some great actors and some great filmmaking talent, and it was a lot of fun to do that film. Yeah, um, Sean Young, she, she stars also in, in Blade Runner, which is... Also one of my favorite movies. No, she's a very adventurous, you know, talented actress who, you know, is, is prepared to put her own sort of persona on the line in a way that few, few actors are. But tell me about about uh, Gene Hackman because he he sort of fascinates me in, in in all these different movies. In the way he acts, this he, I know he doesn't act the same, but the way in a way he acts the same. But still, it's just so completely different character every, every time. And he just how how does he do that? Gene's talent is that he doesn't feel like an actor; he just feels like the character he's playing. Mm-hmm. I mean. Gene was a Marine, you know, I don't know how he even got into acting. I, I remember him telling it, but I can't remember now what he told me. But, you know, he was never saw himself as an actor. Somehow he got involved in acting and thought, well, you know, this is a good way to make a buck. And 
he was a no bullshit actor, you know, he didn't want to talk about his motivation. He just, you know, like, show me the lines and point to where I'm supposed to stand and I'll do it. And he was always so convincing, you know, and he has got that great laugh chuckle that he got, yeah, that sort of chuckle that he had. I mean, he really did a fantastic job with that movie. Yeah. When you get these actors on, on these movies, how important is the script from, from the beginning? Well, I mean, there are the biggest decisions that you make are, you know, what's the script? And, I, you know, if you're going to do it or not, obviously, is the big decision. But who you put in it is everything because different actors are going to come up with different ways of approaching the material. And so casting, I think, is one of the most important parts of making any film. The casting director, Arlene Stager, she came up with a really great cast. And um, I think, you know, if you, get, if you get actors who can sell themselves in a way that other people, you know, if you've got the right person, there's nobody else who can play the part. That's really what I'm trying to say. But when you make a movie like this, um, I know you foc- well, you can see that you focus a lot on c- a certain certain moments, especially the moment when, well, I'm not going to ruin it, but I'll try not to ruin it, but when, when he finds out that uh, she's dead, uh, I think that's, that's a, an extremely important mo- moment in the movie because you're tricking the audience. But, you know, it's what you're not expecting, and I think, you know, one of the... One of the things about you know movies that really do work is when they when you go like you tell your friends I've seen a really great movie but I can't tell you what happened because I'll spoil it for you. Nothing word of mouth nothing beats that sort of word of mouth where people say I can't tell you about what, how, what happens. You just got to see the movie. I mean I've been watching a TV show recently called Rami R A M Y. Trust me, it's fantastic. Okay. And I can't tell you why. You just got to see it because it's so it's so surprising and it's so talented and so funny and touching and suspenseful and you know it's just brilliant stuff good are you new zealand or australian i'm i was born in australia australia okay and why did you come over to to the united states uh well i had you know i'd always loved americana my dad was a a pilot during the war in australia and the middle east and uh, he was a big fan of the americans that he knew that he knew and so he always talked about, you know, my dad always wanted to go to America, not that he did, not that he came here until I was here. But so I was fascinated with the music and the movies and the, you know, Americana, I guess. And I first came here in 1969. Uh, taking, I wasn't even a filmmaker then; I was really a photographer. Um, I, re- I remember I went to the Seattle Pop Festival up in Seattle and. And she get a press pass and take pictures of Argentina, Turner and the Doors and Spirit and these amazing groups. Um, I was hooked. And it wasn't really until I made this film, Smash Palace, <coughs> Smash Palace, a New Zealand film that got uh, a lot of attention here from the film critics in America. Okay. And then once I'd done that film, I had a lot of opportunities to come here and work. And um, ultimately, I came here to do a film for Richard Zanuck and David Brown to, um, you know, big-time American producers. The film never happened. We didn't turn around, and now I was here. So I've been here ever since. <laughs> and and uh, what's your next project, do you know? Well, I've got a number of things in the go, on the go. You know, I'm writing some scripts still. You know, I love writing. Um, the one thing I know, after this many years in the business, you never know what's going to come next because what you think will happen usually falls apart and what you think may never happen. Like, it's, it's tomorrow there's a phone call and they say, yeah, let's make that film. Yeah. I mean, right now, nothing's happening because of the virus. No.
Okay, now I'm I'm just gonna jump back a little bit to 13 days. Please t- take me back to that to that day when when ev- and everyone was was um, was meeting each other there. And and I mean, it must have been quite a, a big moment for for you and also for history. I mean, a feature film doing so much for history isn't that quite amazing? I mean, I I think you know I, I was surprised when you know that the film got the attention of Castro and the Russians because you know. It was not very flattering to them in a way, but at least it was honest from the Americans' point of view. Um, so Kevin O'Donnell, Kevin O'Donnell was a friend of a of a writer friend of mine who I would, I literally met him at breakfast. Okay. And he, his father, that Kevin was playing in the film, and uh, so he he uh, knew Kennedys, Ethel Kennedy, and uh, uh, the son of. Um, JFK's sister, Chris Lawford, and Chris and I became good friends over the time. So the, we went as a sort of little posse to on the on this trip to Cuba. So, but it was just such a great opportunity to see behind the scenes of you know what life in Cuba was like because you know you read about it in the press and you think you know what it is, but when you see it firsthand, it's very different. So you know it was it was just a real uh, treat, I guess to be able to see behind the scenes and meet the people who were you know, behind the stories of Cuba, but, you know, both the people in the streets and the people in power and make my own sort of opinion, create my own opinion about what was going on there. Um, we could talk, I, I'm really interested in, in hearing about the, the people you, you met in, in Cuba, of course, and I want to hear more stories about it, but is there any any other notes that you have that you want to say, like, a, like an anecdote or something that you want to kind of end the interview with? Uh, somebody who recently who had been in Cuba said that if you go to the Hotel Nacional, there's a plaque on the wall saying Roger Donaldson stayed here. <laughs> That's a great ending. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Roger uh, Donaldson. This was a big pleasure and honor for me. Uh, Michael, the pleasure is mine as well. So thanks for talking to me. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.